welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. As always, I want to say I hope all my listeners who are in the United States or any other country that is still dealing with COVID are healthy, safe, and sane. If you are living in California, specifically the San Francisco Bay Area, I hope that you are safe given the fires that are raging there right now. Who knew that global warming could be such a problem? I have family that live over there, and seeing the pictures has been horrifying. I used to live in that bit of California, and yeah, it's not often that I say I'm glad I live in Chicago, but right now, I'm glad I live in Chicago. Today's sound might sound, well, different, but it's because I'm not recording in the closet where I usually record episodes. Instead, I'm recording in the main space of my studio apartment. That's partially because given today's weather in Chicago, my closet is about 100 degrees and I don't hate myself that much. And second, more importantly, my computer's battery is basically dead unless it's fully charged and plugged in to a charger at all times. And my closet simply does not have an outlet. So yeah, not recording in there today. So If the sound quality is a little weird and the acoustics seem funky, that's why I apologize. The last thing I want to say before we dive into the last study guide that has to deal with women in the Harlem Renaissance for now is that this episode is probably going to be a bit shorter than usual, even though Selma Burke, in my opinion, is a fascinating human being. It seems like a lot of historians and scholars don't agree with me. I really struggled to find a lot of scholarship on her that wasn't deeply connected to the history of United States coins. And given that this is not a podcast on currency, I felt like it was better to make this episode a little shorter and more interesting to my listeners. So with all that in mind, let's delve into the life of Selma Burke. Her study guide has Nazis, the Navy, and a currency plagiarism scandal. Let's begin. Selma Burke was born December 31, 1900, in Mooresville, North Carolina, to Neil Burke, a Methodist minister, and his wife, Mary Jackson Burke. She was the seventh of the Burke's 10 children, and as far as I was able to tell, all 10 of the children survived to adulthood, but like I mentioned in the intro, there's very little scholarship about Burke's life, so take that fact with a massive grain of salt. Growing up, Selma was really interested in art. This was partially because one of her grandmothers, whose name, of course, has been lost to time because who cares about the name of women, had worked as a painter in her youth, and partially because as a young child, Selma loved to play with clay and make things out of clay. According to Selma, at the age of seven, quote, One day I was mixing the clay and saw the imprint of my hands. I found that I could make something something that I alone had created. This epiphany was more than enough from Selma, and from that day onward, she decided that she wanted to keep making things out of clay, specifically sculptures. 
Moving forward as a child, she used local North Carolina clay to make sculptures of characters from her favorite nursery rhymes. In addition to loving clay sculptures, young Selma was also really interested in travel. She was inspired by her father's brothers, who were missionaries and who had made multiple trips to Africa. During their time in Africa, Selma's uncles had collected traditional religious African art and sculpture. Instead of destroying it like they technically were supposed to, her uncles had saved those pieces of art and had brought them back to North Carolina to share with the rest of the Burke family, and young Selma quickly became obsessed with African art, specifically traditional African sculpture. As a child, due to, guess what, Jim Crow law and segregation, Selma could only attend a small, super under-resourced school in Mooresville because all the other schools were for white children only. The Burke family was not about this. They wanted their children to get a proper education, so they sent Selma and her sisters to a private school in Washington, D.C. called the National Training School for Girls and Women. While the National Training School had a fantastic reputation, it did not have an arts curriculum, which Selma hated. So, in 1914, when she started high school, Selma convinced her parents to let her move back to North Carolina. Once she was home, Selma ended up getting privately tutored by the superintendent of the local school district and then transferred to the Winston-Salem school system, which actually had a good high school for African-American students. When she was a student in the Winston-Salem district, Selma had to travel over 40 miles a day to attend classes, but for her and her parents, the long distance was worth it so that she could get a proper education. And as a plus for Selma, the school district did have actual art classes. Even though Selma loved art, her parents wanted her to pursue a career that was more financially stable. And yes, I can see where they were coming from. As we've discussed in past study guide episodes, women, specifically African-American women, really struggled to have any sort of career, especially a career in the arts, where it was all about making connections and getting patrons. And let's face it, in the early 1900s in the United States, most wealthy white men were unlikely to help an African-American woman out. So in order to find a more financially sustainable career, Selma went in to nursing. After high school, she moved to Winston-Salem full-time and ended up attending the historically Black University, Winston-Salem State University, and then got a degree in nursing at the St. Agnes School of Nursing in Raleigh, North Carolina in 1924. After getting her nursing degree, Selma left North Carolina and moved up to Philadelphia to look for work. This also makes sense because as we've discussed, even though racism definitely existed in the northern United States, it was much less explicit than in the Jim Crow South, and by moving to Philadelphia, Selma no longer had to deal with things like day-to-day -day segregation and death threats by groups like the KKK. 
Once Alma was in Philadelphia, she ended up getting work as a private nurse for a wealthy white heiress who lived in the city. Through this job, Selma was able to make a decent amount of money, which meant that, one, she would be pretty well off financially despite the Great Depression. Also, her job working for a wealthy white woman meant that she got access to some cultural institutions in Philadelphia, such as art museums, the theater, and the orchestra, which allowed her to make various connections, which is always handy when you eventually want to become an artist. At some point during her time in Philadelphia, Selma married a childhood friend, Durant Woodward, but he died less than a year into the marriage from blood poisoning. Eventually, though, Selma got sick of Philadelphia, and the wealthy heiress who she was working for eventually died. Rip. But Selma had saved up a good amount of money, so in 1935, she left Philadelphia for New York City. And once she hit the Big Apple, she moved to where any young African-American woman with an interest in the arts would move, Harlem. Once she was in Harlem, she started up a friendship with a well-known poet, Claude McKay. And this friendship quickly became more than just a friendship. Between 1935 and 1940, Selma and Claude would get married, divorced, remarried, and divorced a second time, although the exact years of the various marriages and divorces are extremely unclear, and many biographies of Claude McKay say that the relationship between the two never actually happened. Regardless of when and if the marriages and divorces happened, the two were definitely close friends, and through Claude McKay, Selma got to know a lot of leading cultural figures, both within the African-American sphere and beyond. By the mid-1930s, Selma Burke was friends with people including Eugene O'Neill, Sinclair Lewis, James Weldon Johnson, and Langston Hughes. She also ended up becoming close friends with previous study guide subject Augusta Savage, which would help her make even more connections, specifically in the New York City African-American art world this time. Soon after she moved to New York City, Selma started studying art at Sarah Lawrence College. To help pay for her tuition, she worked for the college as a model. And soon after studying at the college, she began getting recognized for her artistic talent. She got funding from the WPA's Federal Arts Project, which I've talked about in past study guides, and also got funding from the Harlem Artists Guild. This funding allowed her to truly pursue art. In 1937, Selma started attending Columbia University to pursue an MFA, and much like her time at Sarah Lawrence, she quickly got funding to help pay for her education. This time, she got multiple scholarships. During her time at Columbia University, Selma became really good friends with Margot Einstein, the daughter of Albert Einstein. In 1937, both Selma and Margot won awards in a university-wide sculpture competition. Selma's award was for a bust she did of Albert Einstein, and as if studying, winning awards, and winning fellowships wasn't enough for Selma, she also started teaching art to local children through the Harlem Community Arts Center with the help of her friend Augusta Savage. 1938 was a huge year 
for Selma Burke. That year, she won multiple fellowships, which allowed her to study first in Austria and then in France. She probably chose to go to Austria specifically due to her friendship with Austrian artist Hans Bühler, who Selma had met in 1937 and who she had acted as a muse and nude model for, although I couldn't find any hint of scandal in the relationship between the two. Bueller partially helped fund her trip to Austria, and once in Austria, Selma started working with ceramicist Michael Pawoni. I couldn't find out how to pronounce his last name, so as always, I apologize for my inability to pronounce anything that's the least bit Germanic. In Austria, under the ceramicist's tutelage, Augusta continued to refine her sculpture's style. The next year, she went on to France, where she worked with sculptor and printmaker Aristide Joseph Bonaventure Maillol, who basically had popularized the style of figure statue that was the most popular in America and Europe before World War II, aka classical style female nudes. Maillol had Maliol was the man who designed most of the sculptures at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City and was close friends with Matisse and he introduced Selma to Matisse and Matisse apparently was a really big fan of Selma's work and thought that she had a ton of potential. As always, you go Selma. However, Selma's trip to Paris wasn't all butterflies, and rainbows. The French economy in 1939 wasn't doing super well, partially because the aftermath of the First World War continued to loom pretty big over Europe, and then there was that whole global economic depression that had started in 1929 and hadn't necessarily ended for most of the world. And then there was also the whole fact that France's eastern neighbor, aka Germany, was starting to stir up a whole lot of trouble for most of continental Europe. During Selma's stay, Europe was getting closer and closer to September 1939, aka when Germany would invade Poland, which would really kick off the European bit of World War II. By the end of 1939, the whole Nazi thing and the threat of continental warfare made Selma Burke realize that, yeah, maybe as an African-American woman, she should head back to the relative safety of the United States, even though studying sculpture in France and getting to live in a country where segregation wasn't literally the law of the land, had been fantastic. So, by 1940, Selma Burke was back in the United States. Once she was settled back in, in Harlem, she opened a studio of her own, the Selma Burke School of Sculpture, where she continued her practice of making and teaching art. The same year, she got her MFA from Columbia University. In 1942, soon after the United States had officially joined World War II, Selma Burke decided that she wanted to help her country fight. While I couldn't find out exactly why Selma Burke decided to sign up to join the Navy, I'm sure her experience in France in the days leading up to World War II certainly played 
a rule. So, yeah, she joined the Navy. Well, she didn't officially join the Navy in the 1940s. Women obviously couldn't go and fight, but she did serve as a truck driver at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which was as close to fighting as a woman could come to. And as a fun side note, one of my grandfathers was involved in the Brooklyn Navy Yard at various points of his life in the 1930s and 1940s, albeit more in a welding capacity. So maybe the two of them crossed paths. Who knows? In her role at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, Selma was one of the first African-American women to help out with the U.S. Navy, although her time doing so would be relatively short-lived because she suffered from some sort of injury that forced her to leave the Navy Yard, and once again, due to the lack of scholarship around Selma Burke, I couldn't find any details about what this injury was or what caused it, but I imagine it probably was some sort of truck accident or something. After getting injured and having to recuperate, Selma ended up entering a national competition to make a sculpture of then-President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's face. In preparation for this contest, which she would end up spending over two years on, Selma managed to talk herself into a face-to-face meeting with FDR, which was fucking huge at the time, because he was a pretty busy man. He wasn't exactly letting artists waltz into the White House and sketch him, especially African-American artists. And Selma wanted this meeting because she felt like she couldn't find any photographs or portraits of him in profile, and she was pretty convincing because on February 22nd, 1944, she was able to end up meeting with the president. When she got the news that FDR had agreed to meet with her, Selma was in such a rush to get to the White House on time that she had to use a roll of butcher paper to sketch on because she didn't have time to grab her normal materials. Originally, she was only supposed to meet with FDR for 15 minutes, but the two hit it off so much that they ended up sitting together for four hours over a two-day time period, and Selma ended up winning the national competition. Part of the competition said that the winner's design would be turned into the portrait of FDR for the dime. However, once Selma's sculpture of FDR was shown to Eleanor Roosevelt, she hated it because she felt like Selma had made the president look too young. Selma explained that she had made FDR, who at this point had passed away, look young because she wanted the portrait to be ageless. Quote, I have not done it for today, but for tomorrow and tomorrow. 500 years from now, America and all the world will want to look at our president, not as he was for the few months before he died, but as we saw him for the time he was with us. Strong, so full of life. End quote. And I guess that convinced Eleanor and the judges of the contest and the people designing the dime because, yeah, the sculpture was ultimately adapted onto the face of the dime in 1945. However, Selma Burke was not given credit for the design of FDR's face on the dime. Instead, credit was given to John Simic, 
the engraver for the U.S. Mint, which, fairly, Selma Burke was not a fan of. And this is just so classic, a woman getting erased for the work that she, that she in fact, did do. To make matters worse, Simic refused to give Selma any credit for the likeness of FDR on the dime, and instead said it was just from some photographs he had seen and from some consultant and from some consulting he had done with some other sculptors, although of course Simic refused to name any specific names. When Simic's design on the dime finally went live, people beyond Selma noticed some pretty obvious similarities between the dime and Selma's sculpture. Both the head of the Smithsonian Institute and one of Franklin Roosevelt's children, as well as a bunch of coin experts, said that Sinek's design was basically a knockoff of Selma's and that her name should be on the dime as well. Sadly, the debate over whether or not Selma Burke should be credited on the U.S. dime continues to this day. Personally, I am Team Selma. However, Selma Burke did not let this debate stop her. In 1949, she got married for a third, possibly fourth, and final time, depending on how you count her marriages to Claude McKay, to a Jamaican architect, Herman Kobe. Soon after the marriage, the two moved to Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Herman ended up dying in 1954, but Selma decided to stay in Pennsylvania after his death, and she would remain in the state until she died. By the 1950s, Selma decided to briefly visit her hometown of Mooresville, North Carolina. When she was down in North Carolina, she found out that African-American children in her hometown weren't allowed to use the local library, and she was furious. So she decided that she was going to change that, but in a slightly sneakily diplomatic way. Basically, she offered to make a statue of a local town leader for free. And by now, Selma Burke was established enough as an artist that the town really wanted the sculpture. However, she refused to donate the sculpture to the town until they desegregated the library, and it worked. The town agreed to desegregate the local library, no strings attached, and they got their sculpture. Further proof that art can be used to change the world for the better. After this brief little foray into Southern activism, Selma returned back to Pennsylvania, where she continued making art and being involved in education. She founded the Selma Burks Art Center in Pittsburgh in 1968, and through the center, she focused on helping disadvantaged and risky youth of all races gain access to the arts. The center would run until 1981, and due to her work in the city, both through the art center and through her work as a college professor at Swarthmore and Haverford Colleges, Pennsylvania Governor Milton Sharp would make July 20th, 1975, Selma Burke Day. Selma Burke was also recognized by Jimmy Carter for her work in the arts and education in 1979 with a Women's Caucus for Art Lifetime Achievement Award. She was one of the first four women to win the award. 
along with Isabel Bishop, Alice Neal, and Louise Nevelson. The next year, in 1980, when Selma was a young and youthful 79 years old, she was chosen to make a sculpture of Martin Luther King Jr. for Marshall Park in Charlotte, North Carolina. The finished sculpture ended up being 9 feet tall, and since its creation has become a site for political protest. Most recently, it was the site for Reverend William Barber's Moral Mondays, protesting various pieces of legislation passed by the North Carolina legislature, including laws that made it more difficult for people to vote, laws that cut social programs, and laws that cut access to abortion rights. The year after completing the statue, Selma Burke took a step back from academia and would only do artistic work for the rest of her life. Selma Burke died on August 29, 1995, at the age of 94 in New Hope, Pennsylvania, from complications of cancer. At the time of her death, she left behind a statue of Rosa Parks, which still remains unfinished. Selma Burke is best known for her sculptures of the human figure. Most of her sculptures were of famous people, including Martin Luther King Jr., Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Mary McLeod Bethune, a civil rights activist who worked personally with Franklin Delano Roosevelt on improving African-American educational opportunities during the Great Depression. However, Selma Burke also created sculptures that showed more abstract ideas that had to do with African-American life and spirituality. Most of her sculptures either were made out of metals, such as limestone, or out of wood. And when she made her sculptures out of wood, she used wood that specifically symbolized the ideas that she wanted her statues to represent. So now I'm going to talk about three of the sculptures that Selma Burke is most famous for. The sculpture that Selma Burke is probably the most recognized for is her sculpture of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which she created between 1942 and 1944 as part of a competition that was funded by the Commission of Fine Arts. She ended up winning this competition, and as a result, the statue was used to create the face of FDR that is currently on the dime. Her statue of FDR is probably the most lifelike of all of her works, and probably one of the reasons for this is because she got to meet with FDR in person several times while she was designing the sculpture, and while she never received public credit for the design, as I already mentioned, the sculpture almost certainly was the basis for the face of FDR that was on the dime, and the fact that she hasn't received credit for this is something that remains very controversial in both the art world in both the art world and the world of currency to this day. Next we have Selma Burke's sculpture of Martin Luther King Jr. in Marshall Park in North Carolina. This statue was created in 1980 and is one of her last public works of art. It is over nine feet tall, so it's also one of her largest pieces of art. It shows Martin Luther King climbing up three stairs, leaning forward with one of his arms outstretched. While it's not extremely realistic, 
none of her statues, with the exception of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, are in my opinion. It's extremely dynamic. It truly does feel like he's alive, like he's in movement. It is so powerful. No matter what angle you're looking at it from, it truly does feel like the stone is moving and like he is either about to go somewhere or start delivering a speech or like he's urging you to do something which obviously is the point of the statue and I absolutely adore it. Lastly, I want to talk about her statue, Mother and Child, which she created in 1950. It's a slightly smaller statue. It's one of her wooden statues. It doesn't show a specific historical figure. Instead, it shows an African-American woman holding a child, and the two figures end up sort of melding into one. It's much more abstract than say the FDR or the Martin Luther King Jr. statues and it's made out of red oak and Selma Burke said that she chose this wood specifically because traditionally red oak symbolizes familial relationships so it went very well with the statues act. So those are the works of Selma Burke. As always for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture. Let's do a quick recap of Selma Burke's life and works. And that rhyme was completely unintentional. Selma Burke was born in 1900 in Mooresboro, North Carolina, to her father, a Methodist minister, and her mother, who was a homemaker. She was the seventh of their ten children. Growing up, Selma had two big interests, the arts, specifically sculpture, and traveling, thanks to her uncles, who were missionaries, who brought back traditional African religious sculptures from their time in Africa. Once she she became school age, her parents sent her from North Carolina, where the only educational opportunities were at small, under-resourced schools, to Washington, D.C., where she and her sisters could attend the highly regarded National Training School for Girls and Women. However, the school didn't have an arts curriculum, so by the time Selma hit high school, she convinced her parents to let her come back to North Carolina, where she could receive private tutoring before going to Winston-Salem, where the school system actually allowed African-American students to get a good education, even if that meant a 40-mile round trip every day. After high school, at her parents' urging, Selma decided to become a nurse, and by 1924, she got her nursing degree and then moved from North Carolina to Philadelphia, where she worked as a private nurse for a wealthy heiress until 1935. In the ensuing years, she married one of her childhood friends, but he died of a blood infection after less than a year of marriage. She also found the time to visit the theater in the orchestra in Philadelphia and start making connections with various Philadelphia elites through her employer. In 1935, she left Philadelphia and moved to New York City, specifically the Harlem, where she quickly befriended both Augusta Savage and Claude McKay. Selma Burke may have married Claude McKay and divorced him twice, or she might not have. Either way, through Claude McKay, she soon entered the artistic circles of Harlem and made herself known. 
by 1937, thanks to some scholarships, she was attending Columbia University to pursue an MFA, where she became close friends with Margot Einstein, Albert Einstein's daughter. The next year, due to some fellowships and a friendship with Austrian artist Hans Bühler, Selma traveled first to Austria, where she studied ceramics, and then to France, where she worked with a famous sculptor, Aristide Maliol. However, Selma's trip to Paris wasn't perfect. By now, we're in 1938-1939. Not only was France suffering from the Great Depression, but World War II was drawing nearer and nearer by the day. By the end of 1939, thanks to the ever-present threat of Nazis, Selma realized that, yeah, maybe it was time for her to go back to the United States. And she did just that, establishing a studio of her own in Harlem. Through the studio, Selma quickly became well-known for her sculptures of the human figure, and in 1942, after injuring herself during her time as a truck driver in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, she entered a national competition to make a sculpture of FDR's face. Through the competition, she managed to talk FDR into meeting him to be able to sketch his face as part of the sculpture-making process, and the two hit it off. She ended up winning the competition, and because she won, her design was meant to be used for the design of FDR's face on the dime. However, when the dime was finally unveiled in 1945, post-FDR's death, Selma's name was nowhere to be found. Instead, the credit was given to a man, John Simic, and debate over who deserves credit for the dime's design continues to this day. After this little piece of drama, Selma got married for a final time, this time to an architect, although he died a few years into the marriage. By now, Selma was living in Pennsylvania, where she would stay for the rest of her life. She continued to make art, opened an art center in Pittsburgh to help bring art to disadvantaged and at-risk youth, and by 1975 was getting nationally recognized both for her art and for her role in education. In 1980, Selma made her final piece of major public art when she made a nine-foot-tall statue of Martin Luther King for Marshall Park in Charlotte, North Carolina. She also was given a Woman's Caucus for Art Lifetime Achievement Award by Jimmy Carter. Selma Burke ended up dying in August 1995 at the age of 94 in Pennsylvania. She is still recognized today mostly for her work on the dime as well as for her sculptures of the human figure. Like I mentioned at the start of the episode, it really was hard to get information about Selma Burke for whatever reason. There wasn't that much written about her beyond the whole she may or may not have invented the dime. Most of what I found was fairly repetitive, but a lot of the research for this episode came from an Atlanta Journal-Constitution article about Selma Burke, her article in Harlem Renaissance Lives, Amy Helene Kirsch's book, Women Artists of the ha Harlem Renaissance, T. Dionne and Sharply Whitting's book, Bricktop's Paris, the article 
who really invented the American dime from Atlas Obscura and the Smithsonian article on mother and child. As always, for a full list of sources, as well as relevant images, you can visit the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. As always, if you want to financially help out the podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. Members of the Patreon get access to fun things like the bi-weekly tangent cast and being able to suggest topics for study guides and tangent casts. Next time, I'm going to be starting a new series of study guides about the worst marriages of history, and we'll be kicking off that series with the marriage of Isabella, the she-wolf of France, to Edward II of England, which went shockingly not so well. As always, if you want to reach out to the podcast on social media, there's the Twitter, Sad Girl Study Pod, and the Instagram, Sad Girl Study. And the best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And please let us know how we're doing. Read and review, or else I'll be sad. Thanks!